This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Goldman Sachs recently hosted its annual Research Innovation Symposium at the firm's headquarters here in New York. We convened companies, industry experts, and academics to discuss the innovations shaping sectors from healthcare to the military. Today, I'm joined by Hugo Scott Gall, the head of thematic research here at Goldman, to discuss some of the key themes that emerged from the conference. Hugo, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. Hugo, last year after the Innovation Symposium, you sat down with us and we talked about the future of cars, of manufacturing, 3D printing. What innovations dominated the conversation at this year's event? The very short answer I could give you is we had a lot of discussion around mutant mosquitoes on Iron Man's suits. I think I need to put some context around that. We had panels discussing synthetic biology, which is where the mutant mosquitoes come in. They are engineered to breed with Zika virus carrying mosquitoes to basically produce genetic faults in the offspring, which then die. So you kind of break the breeding cycle and you begin to wipe out the Zika virus carrying colony. We had the military of the future where we discussed a lot of exciting new technologies, including the Iron Man suits. And we also had discussions around blockchain, the internet of things in healthcare, virtual reality, the sharing economy, the rise of big data and investing, and the future of energy storage. In short, we struggled to keep it down to just eight panels because there's just so much to talk about. So we could spend an entire podcast on each of the topics you mentioned. I want to give listeners a little bit of an overview. Let's first get into the sharing economy. What does this new movement towards access over ownership mean for the traditional economy, and who stands to benefit? The big thing that's changed is 24-7 access. Previously, you had to either own things or rent them with high friction costs and quite a bit of inconvenience. What has changed now is that platforms are being created where inventory is displayed, and as a result, there are increasingly deep sharing markets with real-time price discovery. Think about how hard it was for someone to find a cheap room to stay in in Manhattan 20 years ago, while at the same time it was hard, if not impossible, for someone else to discover if there was a stranger they could trust who was prepared to rent their car or pay for a night on their sofa. Now, it's much easier for demand and supply to meet and discover prices for underutilized assets or idle assets. Remember, a car today is utilized for only at most 10% of the time. This type of idle capacity can now be accessed by almost anybody. And that essentially means that the economics of renting or sharing has become really attractive. You may never need to own something you used to, and because of this, access is almost guaranteed. One of the ideas we're asked about a lot is this notion of peak stuff. That's not a particularly technical term, but it's the idea that people will gradually own less stuff because they can access things they want on demand everywhere. This is the vision of transport as a service. That, along with the cost of ownership like parking, insurance, time spent driving, really reduces the incentives to own a car. So sharing means buying less, borrowing less, and it's hard to measure benefits such as convenience but these cumulative benefits of technology are accruing to users and don't get captured in traditional metrics to measure economies. And so what does it mean for the traditional economy? We think greater utilization of assets and a much reduced need to own is bad news for makers of things. What types of things? Anything that is expensive and intermittently or predictably used as a candidate. So on the consumer side, it's things like barbecue grills, lawn mowers, camping equipment, and fashion accessories. So expanding the user base of underutilized goods is really the backbone of the sharing economy. What other areas might align well with that mandate? I think it's on the industrial side where it's becoming really interesting. The amount of capital that sits idle 
is enormous. So creating marketplaces for things like bulldozers, which are only utilized for about 30% of the time, is just a huge opportunity. And again, it's the same principle of creating a marketplace where demand and supply can meet. Price discovery happens and telematics or things like peer reviews act as trust systems to de-risk the transaction. So this is very early stage, but the sharing of industrial assets and equipment can change the nature of ownership and system-wide utilization. And perhaps the final point to make here that follows on from that is that high utilization means lower capex, lower capital expenditures. Just think about hotels. Room supply in Manhattan used to correlate one for one with the amount of capital invested in the hotels. Now you can increase supply without increasing investment as supply becomes much more price elastic. So if there's a big event, say the New York Marathon, and prices go up, then more people put their rooms up for rent. That is very different. Than, than what's happened in the past, yeah. Let's talk about the demographics of the sharing economy. Obviously, young, technologically savvy people are the most common users of services today. Do you see these services less valuable for older customers who may actually have more disposable income and just want certainty and stability? Or do you see this ultimately becoming something that everybody uses in the primary way that they shop? I think there are two reasons why young consumers today are spending their money in markedly different ways to previous generations. An extended period of low growth has led to weaker job prospects and confidence about the future. That's the first and primary driver. The second is, in many Western economies, younger people are entering their prime spending age without having experienced a single year of above 3% real GDP growth or below 6% unemployment rate in their working life. They're also probably saddled with higher student debt relative to previous generations. The second reason is that their spending habits and methods are being molded in an era of new consumer technologies and really ubiquitous information. Together, we think these two factors are giving youngsters the reason, the motivation, and the ability to trade down and spend less on some goods and services relative to previous generations, but also really shifting an attitude towards the ownership of physical goods. The rising popularity of the concept of sharing isn't by any means limited, though, to millennials. But we think the advantages of sharing platforms are likely to appeal to them. And this, again, reflects the willingness of consumers to trade down and pay only for the services that they value, a bed, a bathroom, internet connectivity. But that's not to say the sharing economy isn't for older people. The average age of an Airbnb guest, if I asked you to guess, you'd probably be, I think, too low. It's 35 years, mm -hmm. higher than you think. The average age of an Airbnb host is actually likely to be much higher because ownership of housing assets is skewed. Skewed towards the older yeah, demographic, right? Exactly. And so the sharing economy gives older people the opportunity to earn some extra income by extracting more out of otherwise underutilized assets. And so really we're sort of moving into the gig economy, the idea that there are lots of second jobs or small jobs. So no, I don't think there is something innate about young people, millennials, that means they are more likely to share. I think it's just a phenomenon that is really brought around by economic circumstance, necessity, and the confluence of technologies. You mentioned the battery earlier as a key focus of the conference. Batteries today have gotten advanced enough to power vehicles, so what's next? What could the next generation of batteries help us to do? We think we're on the cusp of some really exciting progress in the battery space. Firstly, battery costs are expected to halve over the next decade, driven by both increasing scale and manufacturing efficiencies. At the same time, the technology performance has really improved too. Today, demand for batteries mostly comes from consumer electronics, but that is changing. The growing share of electric vehicles is clearly a big catalyst for demand growth and investment into lithium-ion batteries. Our autos team here, in their estimates, think that electric vehicles, hybrids, and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles will account for 25% 
of global auto sales by 2025, and that is up from just 5% last year. That implies a 42% annual growth for battery demand over the next 10 years. But there are several other applications for stationary energy storage. It's not just vehicles, it's demand management, it's the integration of renewables and grid support amongst other things. So we are dealing here with several types of batteries. It's not just lithium iron, which is very good at handling surges in demand and has, we think, pretty promising applications for residential, mainly due to rooftop solar. But it's also flow batteries, which show a lot of potential in the area of grid support, helping grids manage erratic supply. So anywhere in the world that is sunny, with an old grid system as a candidate for this kind of storage. And that has obviously lots of implications, positive ones, for emerging market countries. Much of the discussion today is focused on lithium iron, given its maturity and early lead over other technologies. But there are hundreds of big companies, startups, university labs, pursuing all sorts of new chemistries, especially for large scale, uh, large grid scale storage solutions. And so that really is the holy grail for the energy complex, the real disruption we think is yet to come. Talking about large scale, your colleagues in GS Research have basically said power is the one commodity that's not been stored at scale. Why is that such an exciting opportunity? And will this breakthrough come from scaling existing technologies or more likely something new? Yeah, as, as I said, grid scale storage is really the game changer here. The entire existing power infrastructure is set up on the basis that electricity can't be stored at scale. Supply has to keep pace with demand. But that is much harder to do now. You've got renewable energy, which, which is, is intermittent, which is inherently intermittent. And so as more and more power generation comes from that source, you have to be able to manage that. Together, solar, wind are now around 5% of net generation in the US compared to less than 1% 10 years ago. And that number, we think, is only going to go up. So right now, huge opportunity, but grid storage is still very nascent. Storage applications typically are focused on backup power, peak shaving, and integration of renewables only to a small extent. Where it's exciting, I guess, is that batteries are enabling consumers to go off the grid. You can generate your own power on solar panels and you can store that and you can use it later in the night. So we think in the longer term, battery technologies that allow large scale power storage for longer durations will bring down power costs significantly and could be very, very disruptive in terms of demand for fossil fuels. Our analysts estimate that a connected smart power grid would require batteries worth somewhere between 100 to $150 billion today. And that is more than all other battery applications put together. Hugo, let's talk about defense. A lot of today's most ubiquitous and paradigm-altering technologies, from the internet to GPS, began as military projects. So this is always an area that gets a lot of attention when you're talking about future applications of technology. What developments are most exciting to you in the military space today? Here are some of the cool things that came up. The first one was exoskeletons. So think Iron Man suits. These are suits made of composite that soldiers wear. And what they do is they transform safety, strength, endurance, because they have different materials in them, but they also, they're connected. And that's a big difference. They have connectivity. So intelligence can be delivered to a soldier, improves communication. They really are transformative of the soldier as a fighting asset. And to the spillover point you, you mentioned, innovation coming from the military into, into broader commercial use. You can use these suits in industrial sectors, you can use them for disaster response. They're, they're very cool, they're very exciting, but they have great practical advantages. Second thing I'd say is lasers, also known as directed energy weapons. Lasers have already been deployed on Navy ships and our panel thought they could ultimately be used on every single fighter plane. They have 
precision offensive and defensive capabilities. They can disable an engine block with no collateral damage, and they can easily destroy an inbound rocket. But perhaps the most interesting area, and I think really where there was the most interest, was around drones. We think that this could be a $70 billion global market over the next five years. And, we'll and it's, what, nothing today, essentially? It's minimal. Uh, it's yeah. minimal. And, and this is probably the fastest area of growth in the defense budget. So if you think about what drones can do in terms of data collection, combatant safety, and also cost reduction, you can understand why the military is so excited about them. So moving beyond the military, what are the broad civilian applications of drones? And why might drones provide real value in different industries? Yeah, this is not just the military. We see potential application in, in industries such as construction, agriculture, energy and mining, and to lesser extents, insurance, oil and gas, journalism, real estate, utilities, clean energy, and even cinematography. That's an awful lot of industries that could be changed and helped and benefit from using this technology. Delivery is an area that is widely discussed. The idea that I think most of us have imagined getting our online shopping delivered to our doorstep. Press a button and the drone shows yeah. up at your door. Yeah. We probably file that under wildcard at the moment. We're not so sure that's imminent, even though there's quite a lot of talk about it. It doesn't do any of the companies potentially involved any harm by talking about it. But the big driver and attraction here is efficiency, speed and cost. As one of the drone inspection companies said, what we can capture in five days using a drone could take eight weeks with human inspectors when we're talking about oil rigs. That's a huge difference. You, know, you think about mining where they've got to go in and, and actually explore the ground and, and a drone can take a picture like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the most interesting things I've read about is using drones to herd sheep. And that's one of the oldest industries getting transformed. Electronic shepherds. Electronic shepherds, who'd have thought of it? Excellent. So Goldman Sachs Research also published a piece recently that talked about the growing militarization of space. What kinds of technologies are facilitating what you might call asset protection in space? Space is increasingly critical for the military for things like intelligence, connectivity, GPS, but space assets are also vulnerable, and hence security around them is increasingly a focus, as is at the same time getting faster and better at launching satellites. When a rocket blows up, you lose a very expensive payload. So improving the success rate is critical. Here's a good example. GPS requires a signal from four satellites to accurately pinpoint location. Each of these satellites costs about a quarter of a billion dollars. You have to be able to protect these things. One related technology that's under development is servicing satellites in space. And this is a really interesting example. This is a crossover application of 3D printing where you can actually make the parts and pieces on site, and by on site we mean in space, rather than having to ship them up from Earth. There's also research being done on space tugs, which is basically like tugboats, where you can move satellites around in orbit to extend their lives. And the last point, and I think this is super interesting, is that paradoxically, space is really crowded. It doesn't make sense, but it is. And much of that is things like debris from spent rocket boosters and dead satellites. Collisions cause significant damage, hundreds of millions of dollars spent every year trying to maneuver spacecraft around to avoid these collisions. The Air Force currently only tracks 20,000 objects. An upcoming program will be able to track more than 200,000 objects, which should help reduce space traffic jams. Space traffic jams. So then they can use the lasers to eliminate the debris eventually. Let's finish up with healthcare. More and more devices connect to the internet. A lot of people are excited about the possibilities of the intersection of digital services and traditional healthcare offerings. How big is that opportunity, and what are some of the potential benefits that can come out of this combination? Digital health is a huge opportunity because it's part of an urgently needed solution 
to the healthcare spending conundrum in all aging economies. In the US, healthcare expenditure is, I think, a staggering 18% of GDP and has grown faster than GDP for 43 of the last 50 years. This inflationary environment is in urgent need of solutions, and we think digital health is very much part of that. So consider this. 80% of healthcare dollars spent in the US goes towards chronically ill patients. As it stands now, doctors can only react to, rather than predict, escalations in their patients' symptoms, which usually involves an expensive visit to hospital. So devices and applications that allow carers to keep tabs on high-risk patients remotely, that enables early intervention and prevents further complications. This, in turn, reduces the need for hospitalizations and emergency room visits, which is a big chunk of healthcare spending. Behavior modification is another opportunity coming from connected health devices, platforms that help patients change their habits and adopt healthier lifestyles by continuously reading and interpreting an individual's vital signs. They can help prevent illnesses and adverse outcomes. Obesity costs the U.S. in the region of $150 billion a year. That's a big number. The FDA has already approved over 100 mobile apps for medical use, and our analysts think that digital health is going to grow into a $30 billion-plus market opportunity over the next 10 years, which could save as much as $300 billion in healthcare costs. That's a big, big number. So at the conference this year, you talked about drones, Iron Man suits, mutant mosquitoes. Looking ahead to the next three to five years, what topics do you think will be at the front and center of future innovation symposia? Tough question. By definition, we almost don't know. This year, we had a super interesting panel on synthetic biology, but 12 months ago when we were sitting here, I wouldn't have predicted that. But you asked me for predictions, so here goes. Wireless electricity. CRISPR. What's CRISPR? It's a gene editing technology. Augmented reality. Cobots. What are cobots? Collaborative robots. Cybersecurity. That's not new, but cybersecurity just comes up time and time again. Increasingly important. Vital. Particularly as more devices get connected. Yeah. And we rely on them for health and other things. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And, and I guess data analytics still seem a little fanciful, but are becoming real, especially around things like prediction. That came up a lot on our military panel, the importance of prediction, depending on the nature of the threat. You have to understand the data and get better at predicting. So I think some very cool stuff is coming down the pipe around there. And really anything, I, I think a lot of our symposium was around this idea that actually ever-rising computing power intersecting with the ubiquity of devices just creates so many new potential business models. But maybe, if I can, I'll make a very bold prediction, which is in five years' time at our innovation symposium, I think there'll still be human beings in the audience as opposed to robots. <laughs> okay. Here you go. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 18th, 2016. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.